You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The family of Pierre de la Ramie had fallen, even before he was born in 1515. They had once belonged to nobility, but by the time Pierre came around, his father was a poor farmer working fields in the north of France. From an early age, Pierre decided that fate would not be his. As a young boy, he twice ran away from home, attempting to hoof his way to Paris and education. At age 12, he succeeded, gaining entrance to the University of Paris by paying his way, working as a servant to his fellow students. For the next nine years, he worked and studied, until it was finally time to deliver his master's thesis. At that time, these were delivered orally, not written down, so we don't know what exactly he said. But what we do know is that on that afternoon in 1536, Pierre de la Ramie, who took the Latin name Petrus Ramus along with his degree, changed the world with his title alone. Quacumci ab Aristotle dicta essent commentitia esse. Translation? Everything Aristotle said is wrong. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and by gosh and by golly, it has been way too long since we took pot shots at Aristotle. What did Ramus say in that room at the University of Paris? Did he proclaim that flies had six legs rather than four, as Aristotle had claimed? Or did he disprove Aristotle's notion that snot was made up of little bits of brain being ejected through the nose, a brain that, in his estimation, was only good for cooling the blood? Maybe Ramos took umbrage with what has recently become my favorite bit of Aristotelian gobbledygook, which has to do with sharks. Uh, In his History of Animals, Aristotle considered a strange question. Why is a shark's mouth underneath its snout, rather than at the foremost tip of its head, as is true of most fish? To Aristotle, this represented a liability, a disadvantage to the shark. That's obviously not true. Uh, Is it fair to call that obviously not true? Shark's mouths work pretty darn well where they are. And even if we grant the placement of a shark's mouth as less than optimal, we could pretty easily explain the advantages that override any difficulties, bite strength, torsion, whatever. But Aristotle thinks that the inconvenience of the shark's mouth is its purpose. He theorizes that if a shark's mouth were better placed, 
it would render the shark an unstoppable killing machine. Sharks would eat every fish in the ocean and stuff themselves to death in the process. An awkward mouth is the only thing standing between sharks and global annihilation. In just three easy steps, Aristotle invents a problem, barely examines it, and concludes that the problem is, in itself, the solution. That was pretty spectacular, right? But probably not what Ramos had in mind. Luckily for us, Ramos didn't stop at his thesis. He became a professor there in Paris, and in his lectures, he continued to absolutely savage Aristotle. Mostly, Ramos's complaints came down to differences in formal logic, rhetoric, pedagogy. That is, how to know, how to learn, and how to teach. Doesn't seem like a big deal, right? A complaint about scholarly methods, epistemology? What could be more banal? Oh man, no. Since at least 1256, when Thomas Aquinas praised him as THE Philosopher, that's capital T, capital P, Aristotle was taken by the medieval world as almost an extension of the Gospels, sacrosanct, inerrant. In that backdrop, lambasting Aristotle's scholasticism amounted to heresy, and it was not taken lightly especially by a fellow professor, Jacques Charpentier, who brought charges against Ramos, naming him an enemy of the faith, a disturber of the public peace, and a corrupter of youth with dangerous novelties. These charges were kicked up from the provost, to the local magistrate, to the French parliament, and finally to King Francis I himself. Ramos defended himself by attacking Aristotle all the way, until the king ordered a tribunal, which Ramos sensed was weighted against him. So he withdrew his defense and allowed himself to be sentenced in protest. The commission decided against him, and he was forbidden from lecturing, teaching, or publishing, and forbidden, moreover, specifically and expressly, to leave Aristotle alone. The decree against Ramos was widely publicized, it was sent to universities all around France, and copies were posted in libraries and bars, wheat pasted on the streets of Paris. Ramos was subjected to widespread ridicule everywhere he went. Theaters staged farcical burlesques lampooning him, including a satire by Rabelais. Petrus was forced to lay low and take it all on the chin, two things that were very much not in his wheelhouse. Within a year, he was teaching on the sly at the College Ave Maria, only mathematics, nothing where he could get himself in more trouble, and the crown pretended not to notice. Then, a stroke of luck. King Francis died, and his son, Henry II, ascended to the throne. Henry repealed Ramus's sentence, allowing him to openly teach again. Then he went a step further, elevating Ramus to a chair at the Royal Academy, where he was free to study and teach on whatever he pleased. And what pleased Ramus was, predictably, shitting on Aristotle. But it also meant arguing against economic inequality, for better educational opportunities for poor students, more scholarships, lower tuitions. He argued for more fire and emotion in the study of literature, which had become a world of dry and heartless recitation. He was, in effect, Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society, a film about a teacher who gives his students passion and meaning, and then everything goes really well for all parties involved, no worries. Just like Ramos's story. But for the moment, Ramus was, like Williams, the most popular lecturer in France. 
This emboldened him. In 1555, he published a book, Dialectique, in which he expanded his attacks from merely Aristotle to all authority. Ramus believed that reason, rhetoric, and honest inquiry could give humanity full and complete understanding of the universe, and that it was the blockages of tradition, dogma, and received wisdom that gummed up civilization's otherwise limitless potential. However dangerous his talk against Aristotle had been, the positions argued in dialectique were quite a ways more so. But Ramus either didn't care or couldn't help himself. He had an iconoclasm, a contrarian spirit that was irrepressible, that caused him to take the underdog in every match and to place that bet loudly and vociferously. I have no idea what that must be like. With that tendency, combined with his distrust for authority and his belief in the abilities of all people to deduce truth on their own, it was only natural that Petrus Ramus would convert to Protestantism. Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and Calvin were to the rebellious young liberals of 16th century Paris what Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn were to the rebellious young liberals of late 20th century America. Again, not like I would know. In 1561, under a thin peace between the French government and Protestant Huguenots, he declared his conversion. A year later, open war broke out, and Petrus Ramus fled Paris under the protection of Catherine de' Medici, King Henry's queen. Ramus had a good and powerful ally in Catherine, who went from queen to queen mother in 1559 when her husband, Henry II, died, and her sons, Francis II, and then, on his death, Charles IX, ascended. She helped Ramus return to Paris when peace was signed in 1563, helped him escape again when it was broken in 1567, and once again brought him back when it was safe. After that full civil war between Catholics and Huguenots, King Charles decreed that only Catholics could teach at university. Ramus was forced to retire. But again, Catherine came to his aid, paying him a private salary to study and write, finally privately, finally quietly, for the first time in his life. Unfortunately, it wasn't a great time for privacy and quiet. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. In 1570, France had brokered a new truce with the Huguenots, but it was extremely tenuous. To try to solidify the peace, Catherine planned to marry off her daughter, Margaret, to a Protestant prince, Henry of Navarre. The wedding, uh, it, it did not go well. In August of 1572, the Huguenots came to Paris, but the Parisian Catholics were particularly spiteful of them. Furthermore, the Pope hadn't blessed the ceremony, so the French people were divided on whether or not the marriage was even real at all. On August 22nd, four days after the wedding, someone shot the Huguenot leader Coenet from a window, and the sparks hit the tinder. Fearing reprisal, Catherine and King Charles held a late-night meeting and decided the best course of action would be to kill every Protestant they could get their hands on while the getting was good. This was the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, the Huguenot leadership were slaughtered in the housing provided for the wedding, 
Targeted assassinations rang out from every corner of the city. Lynch mobs ran through the streets. For weeks, the Protestant population of Paris was rounded up, sometimes by soldiers, sometimes by gentry, sometimes by peasants, and murdered. Which brings us back to our man. Pierre de la Ramie, by heritage and birth, Petrus Ramus, by accomplishment and choice, was in prayer the night of the 26th of August, in his study at the College de Presay, when two men kicked in his door. He was shot in the head, stabbed, and thrown from the fifth floor window. But somehow, he survived. His still-breathing body was hoisted up by a mob of students, carried down the road, and tossed into the Seine, where Petrus Ramus drowned. Then, his corpse was pulled out, chopped into bits, and redeposited in the river as food for the fish. But wait, we're missing something. Catherine ordered the assassinations, and Catherine had protected Ramus for decades. So why, then, would she have him killed? The simplest explanation? She didn't. Tens of thousands of people were killed for being Protestant during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and Ramus was a Protestant, yet it's unlikely that the two had anything to do with one another, at least not directly. In the years preceding his murder, there were at least two other attempts on Ramus's life, orchestrated by a man who did not have religion on his mind. Back in 1565, seven years before the bloodshed, Ramus had protested this man, who had just bought his way into a professorship of mathematics at the Royal College. His name was Jacques Charpentier, the same Jacques Charpentier who had brought the charges against Ramus way back in 1543. Jacques Charpentier had used the chaos to finally get his revenge on Ramus for doubting Aristotle. Everything Aristotle has said is wrong. These were the words that baptized the lowly Pierre anew as Petrus Ramus, and these were the words that finally ended him. But they did so much more than that. Ramus was not an especially influential thinker on his own. His contributions to his fields, logic, rhetoric, pedagogy, were fairly paltry, largely ignored. And yet, his irascibility, his tireless attack on the status quo, deeply and profoundly changed the world. His belief that knowledge should be available to all trickled down generation by generation, slowly expanding the opportunity of education to more and more people. And then, again, there were those words. Everything Aristotle has said is wrong. They carried, creeped, and crawled their way around the world, into the ear of René Descartes, father of modern philosophy, into the ear of Paracelsus, father of modern medicine, into the ear of Giordano Bruno, who heard them and rejected Aristotle's notion that the heavens were made up of crystal spheres and was burned at the stake for heresy, into the ear of Galileo Galilei, who demonstrated that Aristotle was wrong when he said that heavier objects fall faster than lighter ones. Galileo Galilei, who was forced at threat of death to recant his statement that the earth goes round the sun rather than the other way around, and under his breath to himself, like a prayer, said, 
and yet it moves. His words echo down to Newton, who overturned Aristotelian physics with his laws of motion. They raise the head of William Halley, who saw that comets are interstellar phenomena. They shoot skyward like an arrow through a stork's breast, Phil, our mascot, who proved that birds don't hibernate like Aristotle said, but instead make tremendous migrations. Look, at some point, we're going to have to come back here and defend the guy. Because Aristotle came up with a lot of really great stuff. And Aristotle never, ever intended to be treated as the omniscient figure that Aquinas and everyone else made him to be. Aristotle's teacher, Plato, thought it was good enough to sit around and think stuff up and call it a day. He believed the world was made of hidden ideals and that the imperfect physical manifestations of those ideals, which is to say everything, weren't really worthy of that much investigation. Aristotle rejected that. He understood that you had to look at and examine things empirically to figure out how they worked. That it wasn't good enough to just cede your opinions to long-dead authorities. But that got lost, and he became the ultimate authority himself. And with that came hundreds of bad ideas. Some of those bad ideas are just silly curiosities, like the shark thing. Some of them held back scientific advancement, like his physics and chemistry. And some helped to hold back humanity itself, like his formal thoughts on the inferiority of women and the morality of slavery. The 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell said, throughout modern times, practically every advance in science, in logic, or in philosophy has had to be made in the teeth of opposition from Aristotle's disciples. That's pretty much spot on. As it ossified and hardened, Aristotle's ideas became a dark and craggy cave in which Western civilization was trapped. And it was Petrus Ramus, with one sentence that both began and ended his life, who showed us the way out. From the Paris of the Prairie, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. <laughs>